if you load into your Gatling gun of automation, spam, bad messaging, all you're going to do is burn through your list, damage your brand and get yourself blocked very quickly. Automating bad messaging just damages you and your company enormously. So here's the first thing. Be brutally honest about product market fit. So if you're a business owner, head of marketing, head of sales listening to this, earn the right to hire sales and marketing people, earn the right for them to be successful by you being honest about product market fit. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey folks, it is RJ Singh from the Ultra Habits Podcast, and we are super excited that you are joining us today for another episode. So today we are joined by global sales thought leader, Tony Hughes. Now, if you're not in the world of selling, don't tune out because we all are in the world of selling. And Tony is not a traditional sales expert. He's a real thought leader, particularly on how the technology in artificial intelligence is really changing the landscape of how we are moving into a new era of sales. And this is highlighted in a book that is recently co-authored called Tech Powered Sales. It is some Futurama stuff, really, really cool um, material around the future of selling and how it's going to shift through the integration of artificial intelligence and how sellers are going to have more access to what he calls trigger points, which are going to allow sellers to know when there are movements in the market and will enable them to find opportunities better in a world that is becoming much, much bigger and complex. And it's a really interesting read, highly suggested to anybody that is in sales or just interested in artificial intelligence and technology. He is also an expert on the traditional side of selling. So prospecting, um, sales enablement, sales strategy. Now, Tony is a best-selling author. He's a keynote speaker and trainer. He is the number one sales blogger worldwide, Top Sales World Magazine. He's the number one sales blogger globally in the Best Sales Blogger Awards and the number three global business-to-business sales expert and thought leader on LinkedIn. And that's no easy feat. Tony is Australian, so it's really great to have someone that's local on the show. Now, he spent lots of time around the world, particularly in the US, building businesses, being part of IPOs, M&A, all kinds of different interesting activity. And the selling and the sales strategies and the conversations that we have around selling are very much applicable to any size of business. Now, one of the real takeaways of the the interview is that whilst the world of selling is becoming much more interesting and complex because of the digital element and the tools available for the seller, but also the, the, the increased noise, there's a lot of truisms and a lot of ancient truths in selling that are still very much true. We talk about the power of effective prospecting, picking up the phone face-to-face. We talk about the dangers of buying into the hype of social selling. You know, you hear comments out there that cold calling is dead and prospecting is dead. 
you know, Tony validates that's just not true. And as sellers, we know as good as your LinkedIn profile is and as good as your socials are, you still need to reach out and touch the customer. We also talk about the personal sides of our journeys as to how the world of sales has really helped transform both of us, you know, me from an out there, you know, chaotic young person to really finding my feet and transforming as an individual through sales. And and Tony has a very, very similar experience with sales. Tony's also authored a book called The Joshua Principle. It's um, a very, very interesting concept in the way that the book is written. It is a kind of Socratic tale of a salesperson, Joshua, and how he interacts with his mentor and how he ends up evolving from a kind of mediocre salesperson into who he becomes. But I won't spoil that for you. So anyways, folks, please do enjoy the show. Rate this podcast. Let us know what you think, what we could be doing better. We do not promote or sell anything on this show. This is all about education. Go to the website, www.ultrahabits.co. Sign up for the blogs. There's a lot of stuff we're publishing on Forbes which is going to be relevant for you, for your colleagues, for the businesses that you're operating in. Anyways, folks, have a fantastic week. Peace out. I'm leaving you in the capable hands of Tony. Tony, we are live here at Ultra Habits. Welcome to our podcast. We are so, so grateful to have you on today, man. Thank you, RJ. Uh, When I received your invitation, it made me smile. I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts. Uh, I love your interview style and the people you have on. So I am super excited about being on with you today. I had read one of your previous books, uh, Tech Enabled Sales, and when I was in a role where I was trying to understand how to leverage different forms of technology, you know, the whole SDR piece, field sales reps weren't working anymore. I was just trying to think, how could we scale the business? I came across that, and I think it was very, it was an evolution of the traditional sales material, but I really wanted to get you on the show, and I came across the, the synopsis of the Joshua principle, which I'm diving more into. And I, I really related, and maybe a lot of salespeople do to Joshua. I think a lot of us get into sales because we fall into it. Like we were not really good at anything else. And we, we were like, oh, you should get into sales. You can talk. You talk a lot, right? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like you talk, you know, and you can you can spin a tail. And um where it was relatable was I I landed in Australia in, in when I was 25, 26. And uh you know, I, I put together a fake resume and I thought I could kind of start over here in Australia. I had a lot of trouble in the US, kind of a street kid. And things came to a head in Melbourne and I resigned uh, at five in the morning. I was drunk, had an alcohol problem. And a new director who was really young and vibrant, who had come across the CFO to the commercial side, I texted him five in the morning that I was going to resign. And we had just met two days before. And I think in hindsight, it was a plea for help. Like, I think when I met him, I knew he was a really, really good person. And he, him and I met at a coffee shop and I told him my whole story, drug addiction, jails, institutions, um, just country to country. And he, uh, without saying to me um, directly, he, he basically was a teacher and he said to me, he said, you've got something special, I paraphrase. You don't know what you have. I know I can get it out of you. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to create a new identity. And so for me, sales and business became a means of personal transformation. Like it was life-saving. It was life-saving. It wasn't something that 
I, I did because I was driven or like I wanted to make lots of money. I did it because it was the only way to be someone new. And it saved my life. I, I kid you not. That was 12 years ago. And when I read your synopsis and what that book was about, I had to get you on the show. So, Tony, I'm going to hand it to you. What drove you to write a story like that? Wow, RJ, that's, that's an incredible story. I love stories of redemption. The hero's journey is an incredibly powerful thing, sorry, in any story. And if we think about life, our ability to develop a level of resilience is really important. So, you know, you had a tough time, maybe not really the mirror image, but just to contrast your story, at 25, when you'd come to Australia to start again, at 25, I'd gone from Australia to the USA. So I was living in Los Angeles and I'd been working for my father in business. We manufactured construction equipment and we had 85% market share in Australia, and we sold the business. We're getting royalties for 12 years in cash. And I decided with a business partner to go to the States and set up the company in America, and we're going to export from Australia and then set up local production in the US. And I was going to become a multi-gazillionaire by the time I was 30. I remember when I learned to fly many years ago, when I just before I went solo in an aircraft, and my flying instructor asked me the question, what's the definition of confidence? He was quite nervous. He was setting me loose solo in club record time, just five and three-quarter hours of instruction uh, with him in the cockpit. Uh, and I could fly, but he was nervous about such little experience. And my answer was, well, I guess when skill and experience comes together, you can be confident. And he just laconically shook his head and said, uh, no, no. Uh, confidence is the feeling you have just before you understand the situation. Uh, most dead pilots are dead because they were wrongly confident. And I remember when I was uh, 20, 23 at the time, that when I went over to the States, I was confident that I was going to be successful. I wasn't. I uh, lost a whole lot of money on my 25th birthday. You're in Melbourne when you were 25. On my 25th birthday, I received a phone call from my stepdad in Sydney to me in LA, and I thought he was calling to wish me happy birthday. Instead of that, I got the news that my mum had liver cancer. And uh, five weeks later, I was back in Sydney. Uh, we nursed her at home. Seven weeks later, uh, she was dead. Um, and within a few weeks, my stepfather killed a guy uh, that was at my mum's funeral in his first social outing at a, at, a, at a club in Sydney, Sydney Rowing Club. He was on a murder charge. My sister tried to commit suicide. My mum had obviously passed away. My wife at the time left me. Uh, I discovered I was losing my business in America. Uh, our biggest customer, Owatonna Manufacturing Corporation in Minnesota, been in business for 111 years, filed for Chapter 11. Our joint venture manufacturer in LA filed Chapter 11. Our biggest customer, uh, and, and sorry, a, another big customer who were working with a multinational, I won't say who they are, but they air freighted our product to Japan where we had no patents and started copying our product and said, feel free to talk to our lawyers in Irvine. Um, our dog got run over, my car got stolen. Uh, I decided that, that, I, that God wasn't a nice person and lost my faith. Um, and all of this happened in a seven-week period. And RJ, for me, you tell your story about, you know, having a second chance at redemption in sales. For me, I needed to stay in Sydney because my sister was in a psych hospital and everything that was going on. Uh, and I had signed a non-compete in Australia in this industry I was in because of the royalties. And I decided uh, I needed to get a job and stay in Sydney. And the big lesson I learned in America 
I was very negative about selling and salespeople in business when I went to the States. And I learned you cannot be that way. If you want to be successful as an entrepreneur uh, or as a human being, you need to learn how to influence and sell. So I got a job in the radio paging industry of all things in sales. And like you, I had a sales manager who believed in me and mentored and coached me. And it really transformed my life, just some amazing lessons in life uh, that that, uh, make all of the difference. How important do you think it is, given there's no real formal training in universities, and I don't really know why, but how important is it for salespeople to have mentors? I've taught selling in three of the universities in Australia, but none of the universities, uh, maybe Swinburne University down in Melbourne where you are, are now doing something in sales, but there's no other university in Australia. There's maybe about 20 or 30 universities in the States that are starting to focus on selling, but selling has always been treated as a byline to marketing uh, within university curriculum. And and the truth is, um, marketing and selling are, are really, really different. Um, selling is about really earning engagement, uh, and marketing is about more just creating awareness. Uh, and all sellers need to learn to market uh, increasingly in the new age that we're in, this new economy, um, the, the land of, or sorry, the era of, of, of digital selling, the, the fourth industrial revolution. I think increasingly marketing needs to take on a sales quota. Uh, one of the things we predict in the Tech Powered Sales book, I co-authored that with Justin Michael out of the States. Uh, but one of my predictions in the book is that 30% of field sellers will disappear this decade. Now, companies are still going to invest money in sales, but it'll be more on inside sales with people enabled and empowered with effective tech stacks. Um, but the biggest thing in selling is you have to learn to get out of your own way. Um, and selling's changing, but there are a whole bunch of timeless truths. And the thing for me is selling helped me get out of my own way. It knocked the rough edges off me. Uh, it, it helped me let go of ego and hang-ups. Um, because selling really is a is a blue collar trade dressed up in a Wall Street suit is is really what it is. Um, and I've always believed that selling is first and foremost about making a positive difference in the lives of others. It's not about crushing quota, making president's club, closing the deal, crunching the deal, smashing the competition. It's not about any of those things. It's about making a positive difference in other people's lives. So first and foremost, we need this level of belief in the positive difference what we do is going to make in the life of another person. You mentioned that selling is very much stay, it's the same, but it's also evolving. In what ways is the timeless truths still a reality? And in what ways is selling changing in your well, view? There's, well, there's timeless truths in selling such as people buy from those that they they know and trust. Some people add like into that as well, but I think the like thing is less important. But if they feel they know you and they trust you, um, so so that's certainly a timeless truth. There's other timeless truths that the the pain of staying in current state needs to be far greater than the pain of change. Otherwise, people aren't going to do anything um, just because this is nice to have and it makes sense and there's some ROI and it would be good to do. <laughs> and it'll help me in my role, those things increasingly today are not enough uh, to overcome status quo 
that exists inside most organizations. So the commercial value of change needs to be really strong today. So as much as there's a timeless truth that people buy from those they feel they know, like, and trust, it's all about relationships. Well, that's that's a timeless truth. It's it is it is real. If we don't build relationships of trust with people as sellers, as business people, then we're not going to have a customer. But there's a paradox. Uh, I call it the the paradox of relationships and selling. In the, in that, as much as that's true, the paradox is that nobody worth getting to for us is lonely and bored looking for another friend from the land of sales. Like they're just not. They're not looking for more relationships. Increasingly today, if you talk to CIOs, procurement managers, the CFO, the leader of the business, they're thinking, how do we consolidate the number of vendors? How do we consolidate the tech stack down? Because every relationship that we're managing has an overhead associated with it. It's diluting our spending power. It's consuming our time and resources. We, the customer, are incurring integration issues. You know, if I was a massive national business, like maybe a national airline, why do I want to deal with 73 different companies that, that mow our lawns and maintain our gardens and facilities? I just want one or two contracts. I don't want to want to consolidate the stack. So that's an example of a timeless truth, but, but there's a paradox today. And there's a huge paradox around tech. We know that we're in the fourth industrial revolution. You've always needed reasonable IQ. You don't need high IQ in selling, but you need reasonable IQ. You definitely need very high EQ. You need emotional quotient. You need to understand yourself and others, uh, how to self-manage, know what punches your buttons, your strengths and your weaknesses, how to relate to others and read politics. So we've always known that's true, but there's a third Q that we need to add today. And the third Q is TQ, technical quotient. If you don't understand how to use tech well, you're in big trouble in any profession. Uh, and all professions, not just selling. If you think about law, a lot of jobs in law have just disappeared. You know, the thing of looking at precedent. Well, there's AI algorithms that do all of that. If you look at aviation, you know, there used to be a flight engineer in every every plane. There's not. You know, the computers and the tech and the AI can, can manage all of these systems far better than a human. Um, so all professions are being disrupted by technology. If we don't embrace technology well, we're doomed or destined to be replaced by technology. So we have to become a little cyborg. We need to figure out how do I take the best of being a human in how I engage with others and be the point of difference in how I engage and embrace the very best of technology right? to, to scale my level of, of, of efficiency and effectiveness in how I operate. You mentioned that through the digital age. And I, and I do agree with you that procurement specialists and businesses understand the overhead associated with managing relationships. And I think most people are becoming lazier generally with relationships because of the Zoom era. It's just like, let's just not meet people anymore because we can get more stuff done by 15 Zoom meetings. And that obviously commoditizes relationships, which as a result, is not great for sellers, right? So like, with the buyers creating more guardrails around how much they engage with prospective sellers, what can sellers do then? Because it me, I mean, one would assume that you have to be more effective when you're in front of the customer. But like, how can we as sellers differentiate ourselves? That's such a great question, RJ. 
Um, we definitely do today live in an era of disengagement. There's a lot of fatigue. That was one of the byproducts of COVID. And now we've layered onto all of that fatigue, uh, a lot of economic uncertainty. So COVID created or accelerated the fourth industrial revolution with this digital first approach to all business and engagements, which created a lot of disengagement, ironically. <laughs> I, I know for myself, when COVID hit and I thought, okay, I'm going to pivot. And I, and I work with some of the biggest tech brands in the world, uh, working with their teams in Asia Pacific. Um, later tonight, I'll be doing a session into a big conference into Europe. Um, but I work all around the world. Uh, but I thought, oh, this will be awesome. I, I'm going to no longer be living on an airplane and I'll get to work out of my home office in this setup I've got now and I'll be able to do lots of cycling. And ironically, I didn't. I didn't get on my bike. I lost all of my fitness. What I found was I was doing 14-hour days back to back to back to back with no, no boundaries. And that downtime when you're traveling of listening to a podcast or some music just all kind of disappeared. So for sellers, it's kind of really interesting. Mm -hmm. you, you can be the best closer in the world, but you don't get to use those skills unless you're good at opening. So opening is the new closing. The, the way we open the deal determines whether we'll ever get to close. The way we open the deal determines whether we create trust and momentum, whether the buyer will share with us a level of insider information and access to others. So the big challenge today for sellers is how do I break through? And what I find is that for entrepreneurs, small business people, leaders, and especially sellers, most people are very busy being ineffective by having the wrong conversations and failing to find a way to break through. So we, we can maybe explore that. There's some key things that people need to do well. And that's typically what I focus on with some of these biggest brands in the world that I work with. Let's talk about the ineffectiveness. What does that actually look like? Well, most business people, entrepreneurs, sellers create all their own objections. Let me, let me give you an example of this. When the pandemic first hit, my biggest client at the time globally was Flight Center Travel Group. That's an Australian listed company that they operate in Europe and North America and Asia. They've got about seven B2B corporate brands. So their top-end brand is FCM Travel. So they run the travel programs for big banks. So whenever a staff member wants to do a trip, FCM Travel are managing that process for the bank. They've got a mid-market brand called Corporate Traveler, and I, I won't go on with the others. So I've been training their teams around the world, and their leadership team calls me and says, hey, Tony, whether it's one of our account managers calling an existing client or whether it's one of our new logo uh, account executives trying to win a new account, we're hearing the same universal pushback, and it goes something like this. The person on the other end of the phone says to our employee, look, I don't even know why you're phoning me. None of my staff are traveling. Ring me back when the airlines are in the air again. And they, and they said to me, what do we do? And I said to them, well, the first thing we need to do is we need to take that problem and apply the right mindset. And the mindset is the excuse is the reason. The excuse for not wanting to talk to your person is that no one's traveling. Let's make that the reason. 
Let's think about the buyer personas to whom you sell. We identified the chief financial officer. Let's think about how that person's measured in their role. Now, I'll circle back to how people create their own objections, right? But when you ring and say, hey, hey RJ, it's Tony from Corporate Traveller. Hey, wh- <laughs> why are you ringing me? None of my staff are traveling, right? Like you've just, you've created the objection. Now, we do need to introduce ourselves. We need to honor business etiquette. I get that. But for example, if a Salesforce rep rang someone and said, hey, Mike, it's Tony from Salesforce, you know, we're the market leading CRM provider. What you do is you create the objection. Hey, Tony, we've already got a CRM. We're not looking to change things anyway. <laughs> so here's what we did for Flights in a Travel Group. This is how the conversation would go. Uh, hey, hey, Mary, it's Tony from Corporate Traveller. The reason I'm calling, with none of your staff traveling right now, I think there may be a way for you as CFO to drive somewhere between 8 to 12% of cost out of what's going to return to be the third to fifth biggest expense line item on the PL. And with none of your staff traveling right now, you've got no change management issues and you have the bandwidth in your admin team. Uh, hey, Mary, do you mind if I ask, when's the last time you reviewed your travel policy and the way that you've been managing travel as a process? Because that, that's where those savings are. And if you do it well, you can also drive down your duty of care risk with your employees and drive up productivity and loyalty. So when's the last time you reviewed your your travel policy, the way you're running it as a process? Now, what they quietly did in the last two and a half years is they have won hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of competitor accounts over without those competitors even knowing. The competitors were in the fetal position waiting out the problem, but Flight Center Travel Group had the right mindset. So that's an example of, of opening a conversation the right way. But when sellers call up and say, oh, you know, hey, hey, RJ, I'm sure you weren't expecting to be getting a cold call from a salesperson right now. You're right. Can you send me an email? I'm late for a meeting. Created an objection, right? Hey, hey RJ, it's, it, it's Tony from XYZZ company. You know, oh, you know, we're not looking to, to, to change what we've got. So we need to open the conversations with a worthwhile point of view on how this person can drive improved results in their role not talk about us. I can get into this some more, but one of the things I teach people is I talk about a hierarchy of communication. And most people in this hierarchy are going bottom up and they need to flip it and go top down. What what does that actually mean? So the way most people communicate is and and maybe let me let me give you an example. My 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 second book I published was was combo prospecting and it's a methodology for building pipeline in the world of B2B selling, right? So Imagine if I phoned you, RJ, ahead of sales. Hey, RJ, it's Tony from Sales IQ. Um, I've created a sales methodology called Combo Prospecting, and uh, it enables your people to drive a whole lot more effective outbound, right? And and if they do that well, that should enable them uh, to help you generate more more revenue and and achieve your forecast. So that's an example of bad bottom-up communication. Because here's the thing, RJ, the moment I say, I have a sales methodology, you think we've already invested in three different sales methodologies that nobody uses properly. Why in the world would I want a fourth? I'm not looking for a new sales methodology. No, thanks. (laughs) So what I did is I talked about who I am and what I do. I then talked about the strategy or the activity 
that the thing I enable helps people execute. And then I eventually got to the result, which is more revenue with an accurate forecast. Now, what most sellers and people don't understand is that when any stranger springs from the bushes into their life, it could be bumping into them at a business cocktail party or drinks. It could be we answer the phone and it's someone we haven't dealt with before. What happens is a seven-second attention clock starts to tick down. Now, it can be over in way less than seven seconds. So the moment the moment I look at my phone and it's a number not in my phone book, they're not in my contacts, and I answer it, and if I can hear background noise like a call center, I instantly think, how do I get off the phone? Very unfair of me. I'm being prejudiced in doing that, right? But my brain's just gone, scammer, call center worker, get them off the phone. So the the seven-second attention clock is ticking. Nobody cares about what we do and how it works until they first decided that they need to change the way that they're currently doing things. So we need to show people we know them and we're relevant. So RJ, if anybody called me and said, hey, hey, Tony, it's Mike, RJ suggested we speak, <laughs> right? So, so that's the strongest. That's a common trusted relationship. I can say, oh, sure, what about? I'm leaning into the conversation. If someone rang me and said, hey, Tony, I love the TechPad sales book, especially the cyborg image on, on the back, or especially the chapter on trigger events on page 63, Hey, reason for the call. So what they've done is they've warmed up the call, not with disingenuous friending, but they've shown me they know me. I'm thinking, man, if you've read my book, the least I can do is is hear you out. Why turn a fan into a detractor by being arrogant and closing them down? Like if they've read my book, I I should hear them out. But what most people do is they don't do that. Hey, hey, Mike, it's it's Tony from Sales IQ. Have you had? Did you have a good weekend? Did you watch the world? Did you watch the World Cup game this morning? Thinking, hang on, I don't know you. Who are you? Disingenuous friending. I want to get off the phone. So we just we need to show them that we know them, common trusted relationship, some sort of trigger event or something that's gone on, and then we need a point of view. So if someone rang me and said, "Hey Tony, love the new TechPad sales book, especially the cyborg, cyborg image on page seventy three." Hey, look, reason for the call. The IP is killer, and I think there could be a way for you to generate half a million dollars of keynote speaking revenue at events where they treat you like a rock star. Do you mind if I ask, how much of a revenue in the last 12 months has come from keynote speaking that you've just loved doing? Now, that conversation will work. You must say, well, of course it works. Tony, you're an egomaniac, right? You'd like you want to do keynote speaking. But, but like it would just work. But if someone rang me and said, hey, Tony, how are you today? Have you had a busy morning? What's the weather like in Sydney at the moment? Um, you know, I'm I'm Phil, and I'm from the author PR agency, and we're the global intergalactic market leader in providing PR services for aspiring authors and keynote speakers. Seven seconds is gone. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I'm not I'm not looking for PR agency. I've already got more work than I can cope with. I'm already the third most read person in the world on the LinkedIn platform on B2B selling. I have a million followers in social. I, I can't cope with the work I've already got. So I really, I, you know, I don't, I don't need a PR agency. Thanks anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. So same person, same person, same purpose and value prop, but a different level of engaging that creates a very different result. 
<clears throat> so it takes one to really put themselves in the psyche of the buyer and do their research as well and come in with immediate value. You're talking about really, really good front uh, engagement skills on the prospecting side. Like for me, in, in terms of sales, my journey was one where I was an excellent prospector. I mean, there was a point where that's all I could do when I started. I, and I think I, through through just practice and time, I developed the level of competence that you're talking about through trial and error and through just becoming confident through just, just hours of doing it. And then, you know, I learned to close and I learned how to engage more in face-to-face. And that was through the mentorship of people like Matthew, who I talked about at the beginning. Now, I'm hearing a lot of language out there, and I want your view on this, that cold calling is dead. And with the book, uh, the Tech Powered Sales book, you know, there was a, a lot of material in there around how to engage with prospects through multiple different methods. Does one still have to be strong on the phone? Does one still have to be able to keep someone on the phone? Or are we getting to an era where there's other means at capturing interest? There's a lot of dangerous, damaging lies and untruths being spread about selling by people that uh, are evangelists for a concept called social selling. Now, Mm. I've spoken at conferences about social selling. I have my own six elements social selling framework. I've done really well in social selling. I have more leads coming to me LinkedIn that I can cope with because of social selling, so I'm a fan of it. But people that drink the social selling schlock or Kool-Aid, right, they buy into the social selling schlock and drink the social selling Kool-Aid, that if I just groom my LinkedIn profile and connect with people and and publish pictures of what I'm having for breakfast, I know I'm being facetious, right? You know, I'm having drinks with my latest, you know, buddy customer, that the world will beat a path to their door and they'll be successful is just a complete lie. So social is an incredibly noisy, crowded, uh, narcissistic, echo chamber of sellers and recruiters and marketers, and many people are, are tuning out. So, so here's the reality. Social media is really powerful for social listening. We can be listening for trigger events. We can get insights into the people we're wanting to run outreach to. We can gain insights about them and what they're publishing. All buyers expect us to have done our research whenever we try and contact them um, um, and engage with them because everything's online. So it's really powerful for those purposes, and it's another engagement channel, but we need to get back on the phone. So few sellers are using the phone. And one of the things that COVID created was everyone's using their mobile phones in business. Like they're more than happy Mm -hmm. to answer a mobile phone call. And there's tools that can source uh, cell phone or mobile phone numbers. So for those Mm -hmm. in the States listening, cell phone numbers. Um, So tools to do all of those things, but we need to get back on the phone. So let me, um, RJ, if I can, Mm -hmm. just touch on some fundamentals. Because the point we make in tech-powered sales, Justin and I make in tech-powered sales, is this. If you load into your Gatling gun of automation, think about Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, from Predator, right? He's got his revolving barrel. 
Gatling gun that he's holding down, mowing down the jungle, trying to get the predator, right? So if you load into your Gatling gun of automation, spam, bad messaging, all you're going to do is burn through your list, damage your brand and get yourself blocked very quickly. Automating bad messaging just damages you and your company enormously. So here's the first thing. Be brutally honest about product market fit. So if you're a business owner, head of marketing, head of sales listening to this, earn the right to hire sales and marketing people, earn the right for them to be successful by you being honest about product market fit. And based on that, define your ideal customer profile. And within an ICP, an ideal customer profile, within an ICP one-page document, think about thermographics, psychographics, and technographics. So think about size, location, industry. Then think about Do you want companies that are growing, companies that are in crisis? We know businesses in steady state. It's hard to change them. And then think about technographics. If you sell technology, what are the complementing technologies that you integrate well with or add value to? Are they competitor technologies that you're really good at replacing? People are often dissatisfied if there's other attributes about their firmographics or psychographics. But, But recognize that the biggest constraint on success is not really the overall market, it's your available time. So apply your time to where there's highest propensity to buy. Now, there's tech tools out there that allegedly sniff the internet for accounts that meet your ICP. So they're on headless browser technologies. I'm involved with a really clever Australian company called Trigger.ai. That's Trigger without the E. But they run headless browser tech, but they also ingest all of the all of the job descriptions and job advertisements off the company's website. This is they're, they're staying in front of any any wall, so it's public data. But you can imply tech and priorities based on what companies are hiring for. So nail your ideal customer profile and therefore know what you're looking for in terms of trigger events and fit. Then the next thing we need to do is understand the roles to whom we sell in those organizations. So if you sell to, say, four buyer personas, maybe it's the chief HR officer, the chief financial officer, the CEO, and and maybe the the general manager of professional services, depending on what it is that you sell, every one of those people is measured in different ways. They care about different things. There's no one message fits all. You need to think about How do we help each of those four different people drive improved results relevant to them in their role? And then lay it on top of that, of those KPI improvements, what of those things monetize really strongly for the business? So that as a request for approval goes up, rather than stall, it gets prioritized. So now your ICP, now your buyer persona, and then after that, you're then in a position to create the right message a customer-centric message with a real point of view of driving improved results. And once you nail the message, then you get into, I have to now find a way to break through into the world of these busy people that aren't looking for another seller in their life. So I need to adopt an omni-channel approach. And that's what combo prospecting was about. Combinations of little pattern-interrupting sequences that gain the attention of somebody, but with the right message. If it's with the wrong message, you're just an annoying spammer. So they're kind of the four key elements. I started really selling around 2008 and LinkedIn and the internet wasn't huge. And my view was back then, and that's not that long ago, that it was harder 
to get through to decision makers. But when you were through, there was less noise. Whereas now the shit salespeople can get through to people and they fatigue the decision makers and they really make it hard for us who are good to get through because of things like LinkedIn, people are over communicated to. Whereas before you actually had to be good on the phone to get through, you know, the, the, the stereotypical gatekeeper. One of the things that I used to love when I was selling was when I'd be on LinkedIn and there's like a new decision maker, I'd jump on the phone, right? I'd be like, oh my God, new decision. Because the guy before wouldn't let me, you know, he wouldn't see me or whatever. And and of course I'd call the new decision maker and be like, oh, your previous guy, you know, he wasn't as good as you, obviously. And, you know, kind of lay that, that, that spiel down. But, you know, what I identified was you call that a trigger event. And that's what I found was brilliant in, in that particular book. And, you know, I remember when I read your book, I ran to my CEO, previous firm I was in, and I said to him, I said, we need a way to find as many trigger events in the world as possible, right? Like I was banging on about these trigger events. Like, like you kind of revolutionized the way I was thinking. I was like, if I could just become a machine that knows where all these trigger events are, we can make lots of money because then we'll know when there's an opportunity, right? Can you explain to our audience what are trigger events? Why are they important? And how we then leverage tech to identify more of these trigger points? If we have clarity about our ideal customer profile, right, we think, well, they're in this industry, they're of this size, they'll be in one of these cities, they make a decision in our country, maybe not, I do all the selling and then they've got to go overseas for approval and the deal dies, right? So you'll define all of the attributes of an ideal customer. Hmm. Then you think, okay, now I need to monitor for trigger events. So as as an example, you might think, we're after companies in a certain industry, and if they have someone with the, with the title of chief transformation officer, if there's a chief transformation officer, that means they've got a transformation growth mindset, innovation mindset, and they'd potentially be a good fit if other things were lined up for our professional services, maybe we're a professional services firm. So we're looking for companies with the role of chief transformation officer. So that is an attribute within your ICP, if this makes sense. Then you think, okay, so I've got an attribute within my auto customer profile. I want to now monitor for a trigger event around that. Well, the trigger event would be a company hires or announces the new role of chief transformation officer. So that's the trigger event. It's the trigger event around that that particular by persona. So, uh, so I'll give you an example of this. I, I got the job once as sales director for a public corporation in Australia, global sales director, public corporation. And I'm going to ask you this question, RJ, and you and the audience can imagine what they would answer to this question. So, when I took the role, I knew that I was the third head of sales in three years. So, I was aware of that before I accepted the job. But when I get in there, I discovered something I wasn't aware of. My two predecessors in the last two and a half years had both, with the approval of my new boss, gone to market to buy a CRM system, customer relationship management system. On both occasions, they'd run the tender, they made the selection, and they took their their request for a rubber stamp approval to my new boss, their boss at the time. And he never approved either of them. And instead of approving either of them, he fired both of them. And now I'm here. So 
the whole market knows that this company, the whole CRM industry knows that this company needs a CRM and has gone to market twice. The day I join, the company issues a stock exchange announcement of my appointment because I got share options and my salary level. By law, they had to do an ASX announcement. So they therefore did a press release. Right? So they did a press release about me joining, stock exchange announcement about me joining, and I update my LinkedIn profile the day I join. So here's the question, RJ. Have a guess how many CRM sales reps phoned me in the first couple of weeks of being there? Have a guess. All of them, surely. The answer is zero, mm. not one. Now, had any CRM rep rang me and said, hey, Tony, congratulations on the role. I'm not sure whether you're aware, but both of your predecessors, with the approval of your new boss, went to market for CRM. And even though he approved them going to market and gave them a budget, instead of approving it, he fired them. You and the business clearly need this, right, to drive the next level of results that he's hired you for. I've got some ideas on why he wouldn't approve it. When can we get together for coffee? You would have had your meeting in a heartbeat. Now, what most sales reps do is, oh, hey, Tony, I'm from XYZ Company. Congratulations on the new role. I'd love to come and understand your priorities. And the standard pushback is, uh, ring me back in five months, you know, once I've got my feet under the desk and I understand the lay of the land, right? So that's that's a predictable objection. And I loved, RJ, what you said. A new person goes in the role. Hey, I'd, you, RJ, say, hey, I've been working with your predecessor and I think there could be a couple of quick wins for you in the role, you know, in talking with your team and working with your predecessor, a couple of quick wins for you in the role. What we know is a new senior person in a role is looking for some quick wins. So you 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 engage in a way that doesn't create objections. So that's an example of a trigger event. A new head of sales joins a company, right? Like they're a key decision maker for CRM system. So what trigger events do? I'll shorten this up. I'm sorry I'm taking so long. No, what no, trigger it's events okay. do is this. <coughs> trigger events create awareness of need or opportunity in the mind of the buyer. It's something that happens that creates awareness of need. So a trigger event could be a company loses its biggest customer. Mm. A company has its number one rep leave and take pipeline and IP out of the business with them. They have a major scandal. They win a big contract. They open an overseas office. They raise capital. If, if your ICP is companies that are growing, our idle customer is someone growing, you go, well, the trigger event around growth could be capital raise. I now am going to configure my Google search. I'm going to configure a saved search around Series A, Series B, Series D, Series E, capital raise. You know, all of these terms, anytime a company raises capital, I'm going to get notified because that's a trigger event around an attribute of growth. And then you say, hey, Mike, congratulations on the Series B capital raise incredible effort given how tough it is right now to raise money. I work with CEOs to help them de-risk that next level of growth that they've committed to the investors and board. Do you mind if I ask? Right? So you, you create engagement around something that's relevant. So it creates awareness of need or opportunity in the mind of the buyer, but it creates context for the seller. Buyers have an expectation that we show them that we know them right out of the gate. Forget the disingenuous friending, how was your weekend? Forget all of that. Hey, Mike, I noticed that we both like golf, you know, in our mm -hmm. hobbies in LinkedIn. Like, none of that works. Just, hey, congrats on the capital raise. 
I work with CEOs driving risk out of that next level of growth. Do you mind if I ask? Oh, it makes sense to get together. How's Thursday? Mm-hmm. So, um, and then there's four different types of trigger events. I won't get into all of that. If you want to buy tech-powered sales, like it ex- explains trigger events, it talks about the tools and the tech that you can use to automate the monitoring of trigger events. Um, but the thing about tech-powered sales is we're very intentional in warning people. We're warning people to not be complacent about technology because it is changing the world at an insane rate. Tech has already passed the Turing test, uh, mm-hmm. not just the written test. Uh, if you look at GTP3, you know, the, 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 the things that it can do is insane. People, 98% of the population are, are interacting with AI chatbots and don't even know. They think it's humans. It's articles that are being written that we consume in newspapers and online. Mm-hmm. What is it written by technology? It's passed the Turing test in voice calls. It can talk to people in voice calls. They have no idea it's a bot. And if you look at deep fake video technology and what's going on with all of that, uh, we're not getting far away from fooling people. Um, and I think the world is going to revolt against AI bots deceiving them about whether they're dealing with a human or not. But what we predict in the book is that there will be AI assistance. So sellers will have an AI assistance that's gathering all of the research data, the trigger events, the background, the briefings. It's monitoring the call. It's monitoring talk time. It's listening for buying signals. It's prompting the seller on the things they should be focusing on. It's pushing up the relevant case study that they can talk mm-hmm. about. So we'll have we'll have a digital assistant that'll be AI. Uh, and we, we talk about this in the end of Tech Powered Sales. It's a, I, mm-hmm. I tell this story of a day in the life of a seller and the idea is you read it and go, well, that, that's an amazing piece of science fiction. But the point I make is that every single thing in the story is here today mm-hmm. except for one piece. And the one piece that's missing is the orchestration bot. All of the individual elements that, that this amazing digital AI assistant for seller are all there except the orchestration piece. So that the next unicorn that brings it together. Yeah, so you know we've 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 gone from narrow uh, AI to starting to move into general. Mm. There's a big debate about whether super AI will ever happen. Um, mm. I believe it will. Uh, you know whether that's in the 2050s or 100 years time. You know we really don't know. We know that imitation is not genuine intelligence, but you know the level of art that AI can create is mind-boggling. Its writing ability is insane. And if you measure intelligence, if you look at human intelligence, I think you'd agree, RJ, that anyone who's got a photographic memory and can recall facts, you know, they'll do incredibly well in university and at school and we'll go, man, they are massively intelligent. They've got high IQ. Well, any bot can slaughter a human in that Mm. endeavour. Even things like abstract language concepts, um, IBM Watson slaughters any human being at jeopardy, which is a bizarre um, word, language, contextualization, general knowledge thing, but you've got to contextualize really well. A lot of it's quite abstract. No human has any chance. So there's many, many things where humans have no chance of competing against, against mm-hmm. bot. Um, so for all mm-hmm. of us to de-risk our career, we need to think, I need to get really good at working with my own tech stack. When I go see my dentist, 
he's amazing with his own tech, you know, taking images, showing mm-hmm, mm-hmm, his tech incredibly well, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, any dentist that doesn't use tech well, um, mm-hmm. I would probably end up finding another dentist. Yeah, I had a dentist like that too before I, le- before I moved to Victoria. So th- <laughs> look, that it's, um, yeah, definitely, yeah, when I read the book, it was like definitely Terminator 2 for selling. We will start to land the plane, Tony, right now. I really yeah. want to thank you for your time in the world of selling, which is changing. What are some of uh, a couple of habits that sellers should and could embrace, you know, to stay successful within their craft? So RJ, I've, I've looked at a lot of your content. You are 1000% bang on the money about habits being the thing that creates success or failure in someone's life. So there's other things about our own sense of belief and imposter syndrome and all, all of those things. But at the end of the day, it's our habits that end up creating the results. And most sellers are doing just enough every day not to feel guilty as opposed to doing what it actually takes to have the success they think they want. So people need the habit of prospecting every single day. Do not believe or live the lie that you're too busy to be prospecting. You need to get up in the morning and have a couple of Red Bulls and some coffees and get on the phone and prospect. Eat rejection for breakfast every morning of your life. You'll feel so good about yourself. Get into the office or when all of the other snoozers that you work with drift into the office at quarter past nine, cruise around in LinkedIn and the social platforms for 45 minutes go and have a coffee, and then at about 10.30 in the morning start to feel guilty they've done nothing, when they turn up at the office, know that you've already done an hour and a half of prospecting, building pipeline. Consistent pipeline generation is the cure of all ills when it comes to revenue for anyone in sales or business. No matter how busy you are, just have the habit, the habit of prospecting the right way. Be customer-centric, have a point of view on how the other person can drive results in their role. And that's what will make all the difference in anyone's business life. Love it, Tony. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, man. Thanks, RJ.